Last week on the History of Medicine, we discovered the new broad-spectrum antibiotic chloromycetin, also known as chloramphenicol, which could cure some new diseases and covered what existing drugs already targeted as well. We are still in the heyday of antibiotic fever, and each new antibiotic still draws tons of attention and lots of money, with little thought to the potential downsides of rapidly adopting and prescribing new medications to, well, everybody. Chloromycetin was certainly no exception. In 1949, chloromycetin was hailed as, quote, the greatest drug since penicillin by Collier's Magazine, and in 1951, chloromycetin was over 36% of the entire broad-spectrum antibiotic market, rocketing Park Davis to the status of the largest pharmaceutical company in the world, with $55 million in sales from chloromycetin alone, or about $541 million in 2019 money. In April 1951, the FDA received an ominous report from Dr. Albie Watkins, a family doctor practicing in Southern California, who expressed concerns over a case of aplastic anemia in his nine-year-old son, James. Dr. Watkins believed that chloromycetin was responsible for the anemia, which had been given to his son during a kidney surgery. Aplastic anemia is a pretty serious blood dyscrasia, or a disease that attacks the human bone marrow and therefore interferes with how blood cells are produced. Some types can affect only certain types of blood cells. For example, if a blood dyscrasia affects red blood cell production, it can lead to fatigue because of lack of oxygen distribution, which is what red blood cells handle. Aplastic anemia is particularly bad, because it results in a decrease in every single blood component, which causes a whole host of problems. No red blood cells means no oxygen distribution to cells, which causes fatigue. Missing platelets, which are used in clotting, leads to easy bruising and slowed healing. No white blood cells, which normally attack any foreign bodies, mean the patient's immune system essentially shuts down. Aplastic anemia combines all of these together to make for one very, very bad disease. For Dr. Watkins, this fight was personal. His son died from the complications related to the aplastic anemia in May 1952, and Dr. Watkins was absolutely convinced that chloromycetin was responsible. He was a veteran of the Coast Guard and the U.S. Public Health Service, and he brought every skill that he had to the fight. Besides his letter to the FDA, he closed down his practice and stopped in small towns and cities across the country, asking MDs everywhere and anywhere if they had any similar stories to his own tragedy. Watkins, however, was not alone. In 1952, Dr. Earl Lloyd, an internist working in Missouri, published an article in the journal Antibiotics and Chemotherapy titled Aplastic Anemia Due to Chloramphenicol, using the generic name for chloromycetin instead. In the first six months of 1952, dozens of articles appeared documenting problems with chloromycetin. As you can imagine, the optics of people and particularly children dying of a terrible side effect from a drug was pretty bad, and very much surprised the folks at Park Davis. This drug had been licensed for sale at this point for three years, and had been administered to some four million people, and suddenly this deadly complication just appears out of the blue. In fall of 1952, Dr. Watkins makes it to Washington, D.C., in a meeting with Henry Welch, the director of the FDA's Division of Antibiotics. He was unsatisfied with the FDA's actions, even though they had already initiated a survey on blood dyscrasias in response. They found detailed information on 410 cases of blood dyscrasia, but in about half of them, the patients had never taken chloromycetin. In 116 of them, other drugs had been prescribed as well, 
and only in 61 of the 410 total cases had the patients been prescribed chloramphenicol only. Of course, on top of all of that, every single patient in this collection of cases was already sick to begin with. Aplastic anemia is also exceedingly rare, where it barely shows up unless you have populations of at least 100,000 people, making identifying causes very difficult today, much less in the 1950s. To make things even more confusing, the link between chloramphenicol and aplastic anemia isn't dose-dependent. Usually with most drugs, effects are heavily dependent on dosing, including negative effects. For example, if you take more ibuprofen, you're going to get more pain relief, but it will also increase your risk of side effects. Chloramphenicol did not have this relationship with regards to aplastic anemia. Giving more chloramphenicol for some reason doesn't make it more likely that you will suffer from aplastic anemia. Regardless of the relative weakness of the evidence, regulators took notice and action. The National Research Council released a critical report saying, quote, The evidence was reasonably convincing that chloramphenicol caused blood dyscrasias and that it was the responsibility of each practicing physician to familiarize himself with the toxic effects of the drug, end quote. In July, after the National Academy of Sciences reviewed the findings, Homer Frisch, a vice president at Park Davis, received a phone call. FDA Deputy Commissioner George Larrick was on the line and told him, quote, we can't go on certifying that the drug is safe. However, this didn't mean that the FDA was going to ban chloramphenicol. The FDA held an ad hoc conference on chloramphenicol, and basically everybody there believed that the drug's benefits still outweighed its risks. New labeling was suggested for the drug, but no restrictions on distribution or prescription were made. If that sounds irresponsible to you, and it certainly does to me, you have to understand that things were a bit different at the time. Before the advent of antibiotics, medicine did not have standardized treatments in the way that we see today. Before penicillin, about three-fourths of pharmacists were following physician-supplied recipes and instructions, with only the remaining quarter ordering directly from some sort of catalog. In comparison, a decade later, 90% of prescribed medicines were branded products, standardized and mass-produced, but also far, far more effective than anything that had ever existed for all of human history. In the 20th century and before, it was also much more taboo to regulate the activity of doctors, and doctors had extremely high expectations of autonomy, even more so than they do today. So although it may sound weird to us now, the FDA just making labeling changes in response to life-threatening side effects was not unusual for the time. However, just because the government only gave them a slap on the wrist didn't mean that Park Davis didn't suffer. Sales of chloromycetin, which were 40% of the company's revenue, mind you, and about 75% of its profits, fell drastically. The $3.5 million spent on a new plant in Holland, Michigan, had to be idled as demand dwindled. The company actually had to borrow money in order to pay its 1952 tax bill. In 1953, Fortune described Park Davis as, quote, sprawled on the public curb with an inelegant rip in its striped pants, end quote. To be fair to Park Davis, chloromycetin was better in many ways than other antibiotics. It targeted far more pathogens and had less side effects compared to streptomycin, which often caused hearing loss, and tetracycline, which the digestive system tends to tolerate pretty poorly. Park Davis published studies and estimated that the risk of contracting aplastic anemia after taking chloromycetin was around 1 in 200,000 to 1 in 400,000. But as often goes with these things, studies and statistical analyses can't beat out heart-wrenching stories of suffering, 
especially when the victims in question are otherwise healthy children and teens. The evidence of aplastic anemia from chloramphenicol slash chloramycetin was a tad flimsy, but it still didn't look good. And of course, no other antibiotic had any ties to aplastic anemia at all. But what really did in Park Davis was not the drug itself, but the salesmen who were peddling it. Physician opinions of the salesmen was originally pretty low. For example, William Osler, a founder of Johns Hopkins, described them as, quote, a dangerous enemy to the mental virility of the general practitioner, end quote, back in 1902. But with time, that had to and did change. The pace of change in the medical field at this time was so fast that many doctors had gone through medical school before any antibiotics had existed. On top of that, doctors were not generally expected to perform scientific research or analyze results, a necessary skill for discerning between different drugs and treatments. By the mid-20th century, detail men, as pharmaceutical sales reps came to be known, were a welcome presence instead. They were there to provide information on their company's latest and greatest miracle drugs, and also, of course, to provide free pens, lunches, and calendars, all while raising their employer's bottom line. Park Davis was even known for hiring only certified pharmacists for their detailing sales force, and it was said that a visit was equivalent to a seminar in pharmacology. That clean reputation changed, though, when Park Davis came under new leadership. Harry Loind started at Park Davis as a detail man, and ended as CEO, but his experiences colored his attitude on the way up. At one meeting, he told his salespeople, quote, If we put horse manure in a capsule, we could still sell it to 95% of these doctors. End quote. He believed that Park Davis's biggest advantage over its competitors was its sales force, and he was right to an extent, but he took it just a little bit too far. Loind actually spun the FDA's new labeling decision as a victory for the company. He issued a press release that said, quote, Chloromycetin has been officially cleared by the FDA and National Research Council with no restrictions on the number or the range of diseases for which chloromycetin can be administered, end quote. Emphasis on no restrictions present in the original press release. Doctors all over the country received letters with similar language. The Park Davis sales team was told that the National Research Council report was, quote, undoubtedly the highest compliment ever tendered the medical staff of our company, end quote, which mostly just makes it sound like they didn't read the actual report. With such sales-heavy culture and relatively weak regulations or enforcement in place, detailed men were mostly free to sell how they wanted. They walked a very fine line between promoting and warning about chloromycetin, and the FDA was not happy about it. In one case, a San Francisco physician even accused two Park Davis salesmen of making deceptive statements. Despite the questionable morality, it did work. Sales of chloromycetin recovered, even after another public relations debacle involving chloromycetin. This time around, in 1959, doctors in six different hospitals noticed a rise in neonatal deaths among babies given preventative chloramphenicol. They were attempting to stave off infections, especially in vulnerable patients such as prematurely born babies. Those given chloramphenicol died at a rate five times higher than was expected for the time. This eventually comes to be known as gray baby syndrome, caused because some infants could not metabolize the antibiotic properly. Symptoms include, as you might guess, ashen skin, low blood pressure, and cyanosis, where the skin appears blue due to low oxygenation. When symptoms showed up, doctors, not knowing yet of gray baby syndrome, would prescribe more of the drug, 
further compounding the problem. Gray babies usually showed chloramphenicol levels five times higher than the clinically acceptable therapeutic dose. Aplastic anemia also returned chloromycin to the news in the 1960s, but this time with a vengeance and more powerful mouthpieces. Dr. Watkins, who had led the first push, passed the torch to Edgar Elfstrom, who also experienced the terrible heartbreak of losing a child to aplastic anemia. His daughter was prescribed more than 20 doses of chloromycetin over a simple sore throat, and she also died from her complications. The difference was that while Dr. Watkins was a relatively unknown figure, Elfstrom was a well-established writer, editor, and publisher. He sued his doctors and Park Davis, wrote dozens of open letters to the FDA, Congress, and the Attorney General, and the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. He even at one point met with the President, and he had stories published in any paper he could, which was a pretty good number considering his extended connections in the media industry, and even got a major series in the Los Angeles Times started. I don't have the articles, but even just quick summaries of the stories sound absolutely heartbreaking. Examples include a teenager who died after six months while being treated just for acne, an eight-year-old being treated for an ear infection, toddlers as young as four or five dying terrible deaths, the general story goes a minor ailment, excessive chloromycetin treatment, then bruising, skin lesions, bleeding, hospitalization, and finally, an agonizing death. There's a lot of takes on what these failures should teach us. A common one is that clueless doctors or greedy companies or weak regulators aren't to be trusted. And there is some element of all three of those lessons here. Should Park Davis have treaded more carefully with its sales? Yeah, definitely. Should doctors have read up more on chloromycetin independently of their assigned salespeople? For sure. And should the FDA have bared its teeth maybe a little bit more? I would think so. But hindsight is always 2020, and reality is far more complicated than any one of these explanations. As with any new technologies, society needs time to adapt to them. Before antibiotics, you might recall from some of the earlier episodes that treatments for most diseases were usually just placebos at best, and at worst were actively toxic or dangerous. Antibiotics changed all of that, and on top of that, standardized treatments in many ways, as I've mentioned before. The problem with that change is that there were no good systems in place to weigh risk for the public as a whole, especially for treatments being given to such a large number of people, which is what would have been necessary to prevent the tragedies of chloromycetin. It's difficult to ask doctors who are on the ground treating patients one at a time, especially before we have an awareness of the problem, to prescribe drugs in a way that is good for the general public. Physicians were prescribing chloramphenicol for all sorts of minor ailments, even when the FDA labeled it with a warning advising to only use the drug when absolutely necessary. In most cases, they were simply trying to use the best tool that they believed they had at their disposal, and chloromycetin, as we've talked about, did have a lot of truly tangible benefits. Likewise, companies will inherently be on the more reckless side with the drugs and products they produce. All the incentives are aligned to prop up their products, even in the face of some potential harm. If companies and researchers are going to spend tons of time and money, they want to see return on that cost. And as well, the people working on the cutting edge of antibiotics are probably already the most enthusiastic. By nature, they're going to be big believers in antibiotics and spreading their use as much as possible. Finally, the government at this point had never had to regulate in a way that was necessary to prevent these deaths. The risks and benefits of drug use cannot be measured in a vacuum, which is what had more or less been done so far. 
Recall that typhus, which can only be cured by chloramphenicol, kills 10-60% to 60 of its infected. We don't really take issue with its use for that, because when the risk of more severe complications is so much lower, and the risk of death from the disease itself is very high, it seems like a good trade-off. The problem comes when it's used for incredibly mundane things, like acne, which poses no direct threat to life at all, and suddenly treating something like a sore throat can kill your child in awful ways. Next week, as you can probably guess, the government is going to finally step up, and become a more modern and powerful FDA. Unfortunately, it will still take yet more tragedy before enough political pressure finally mounts to force a change. Like usual, thanks to my editor, Jojo Tang, our cover art artist, Angie Lee, and Muse Open for our intro and outro music. If you can, please throw a rating or a review my way, or leave a like or contact me through any of the links on social media in the show notes. Thanks for listening.